You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. It is December, and it's, uh, spooky Halloween. No, no, spooky Christmas. That's, that's the right one. I think, I think it's spooky Christmas. I'm not sure what's going on in town yet. I haven't seen Dave for a little bit, so, uh, after I find out where Dave is, we'll find out what's going on around town. So, happy December. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell people about us and uh, ask us questions. Send us mail. Uh, just follow the show notes and uh, we'll talk to you then. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, by the way, Henry Kuttner stories. Five of them. Four of them? couple of them. Here we go. Chapter 4. Growth New Year's in Court Most of December 1940 had been spent in his laboratories, engrossed with a task the nature of which he explained to no one. The great Wisconsin mansion where he lived with his staff had been metamorphosed into a fortress of science, though from the outside it resembled merely an antique, dilapidated structure. But nearby villagers viewed with suspicion the activity around Court's home. The local post office was deluged with letters and packages. At all hours automobiles arrived, carrying cryptic burdens for Court. Slyly, the villagers questioned Sammy, for he often wandered into the combination store and post office to sit by the stove and puff great, reeking fumes from his battered pipe. Sammy had not changed much with the years. His hair had turned white, and there were merely a few more creases in his brown face. Since moving to Wisconsin, Stephen had relaxed the anti-liquor restriction, but Sammy had learned the value of moderation. "'What's going on up at your place?' the storekeeper asked him, proffering a bottle. Sammy drank two measured gulps and wiped his lips. "'The Lord only knows,' he sighed. It's way beyond me. Stevie's a swell boy, though. You can bet on that. Yeah, retorted somebody, with an angry snort. He's a cold-blooded fish, you mean. The boy ain't human. He's got ice water in his veins. Comes and goes without so much as a howdy-do. He's thinking, Sammy defended sturdily. Got a lot on his mind these days, Stevie has. He gets about two hours sleep a night. But what's he doing? I don't know, admitted Sammy. Inventing something, maybe. More than likely he'll blow us all up one of these fine days, grunted the storekeeper. The loungers around the stove nodded in agreement. Here's the tram coming in, hear it? Sammy settled himself more comfortably. There ought to be a package for Stevie, then. There was. The old man took the parcel and left the station. He stood for a time, watching the train disappear into the distance. Its whistle sang a seductive song that aroused nostalgia in Sammy's bosom. He sighed, remembering the old days when he had been a hungry, carefree bindlestiff. Well, he was better off now, well-fed and cared for, without any worries. But it was nice to hear a train whistle once in a while. He climbed into the roadster and zoomed off toward the mansion. 
Ten minutes later he led himself into the hall, to be met by an anxious-eyed girl in a white uniform. "'Did it come?' she asked. "'Sure, Marion. Here it is.' He gave her the parcel. Holding it tightly, she turned and hurried away. Since her arrival three years ago, Marion Barton had become a fixture in the house. She had been hired at first as a temporary laboratory assistant, during the absence of the regular one, but she had interested Court, who saw surprising capabilities in her. The fact that Marion was altogether lovely, slim, brown-eyed, dark-haired, with a peach complexion and remarkably kissable lips, meant nothing at all to Court. He merely catalogued her as a perfect physical specimen, thoroughly healthy, and concentrated on the more interesting occupation of investigating her mind. What he found there pleased him. "'She's intelligent,' he told Sammy, "'and she is meticulously careful. I have never seen her make a mistake. She's such a perfect assistant for me that we work in complete harmony. The girl seems to know exactly what I want, whether to hand me a scalpel or a lens, and she's completely unemotional. I shall keep her on, Sammy, and train her." "'Uh-huh,' said the old man, nodding wisely. "'She does all that, and she's completely unemotional, eh? Well, maybe so. Sure she ain't in love with you, Stevie?' "'Rot!' Court snapped but it made him think it was necessary to warn Marion. "'I'll pay you well,' he explained to her, "'and give you an invaluable training, but I have no time for emotional unbalance. I cannot afford distractions. Do you understand me?' "'Well,' Marion observed, with desperate levity, "'I'll wear horned-rimmed glasses, if you want, and hoop-skirts, if my legs distract you.' "'Not at all.' I merely mean that there must be no question of any, well, infatuation." Marion was silent for a moment, though her eyes sparkled dangerously. "'All right,' she said quietly. "'I won't fall in love with you, Mr. Court. Is that satisfactory?' "'Quite,' Court said. He turned away, obviously dismissing the subject, while Marion glared at his retreating back. She was remembering this scene now as she went into Court's laboratory. He was bent over a table, one eye to a microscope, his lips tensely pursed. Marion waited till he had finished his count. He straightened and saw her. "'Got it?' he asked calmly. "'Good.' Court ripped open the package and drew out a small, leather-bound notebook. Hastily he flipped through the pages. His strong, tanned face darkened. "'Wait a minute, Marion,' he called as the girl moved to leave. "'I want to talk to you.' "'Yes?' "'Er, this is New Year's Eve, I know. Had you planned on doing anything tonight?' Marion's brown eyes widened. She stared at Court in amazement. Was he trying to date her? "'Why, I did plan on—I should appreciate it,' he said, without a trace of embarrassment if you would stay and help me with some research tonight. I regret having to say this, but it's rather important. I want to verify certain tests." "'I'll stay,' Marion assented briefly, but she flushed. "'Good. Stain these slides, please.' 
For several hours the two worked in silence. Court engrossed with his microscope, the girl busy dyeing the samples. Finally, Court exhausted a small tank and conducted experiments in the vacuum he had created. Time dragged on till the huge old house was utterly still. The chill of a Wisconsin winter blanketed it, making frost patterns on the window panes. Inside the room it was warm enough, though snow lay thickly on the ground outside. Presently Marion slipped out of the room and returned bearing a tray of coffee and sandwiches. She set it on a table and glanced at Court. Standing by a window, he was idly smoking a cigarette. "'Mr. Court, what is it?' he asked, without looking around. His face was upturned to the quiet night outside as he spoke again, not waiting for her answer. "'Come here.' Marion obeyed. She was astonished to see that Court's face was drawn and haggard, actually gray around the lips, but his eyes were feverishly bright. "'Up there,' he said, pointing. "'Do you see anything?' The cold stars glittered frostily in an abyss of empty black. Some icy breath of the unknown seemed to blow down from the frigid, airless seas between the planets. Marion shuddered. I see nothing unusual," she said. Naturally, no one has. There's nothing visible. And yet," wearily, he rubbed his forehead, it's impossible that my experiments have lied. Drink some coffee," Marion urged. Court followed her to the table and sat down. As she poured the steaming liquid, his somber eyes dwelt on her face. "'Are you game for an airplane trip into Canada?' he asked abruptly. "'Yes. When?' "'As soon as I can arrange it. There's a man I must see. Um, a patient.' Court gulped down untasted coffee and blinked tiredly. "'You should get at least a little sleep.' "'Not yet.' "'I don't know.' He came to a sudden decision. "'Marion!' You don't know anything about this experiment I'm working on. No one knows about it yet, except me. All this data I've been collecting lately has been for a purpose. You haven't any idea what that purpose is, have you?" No, I haven't. Well, Court declared, with curious calm, it's simply this. I have reason to believe that the Earth is going to be destroyed. Wait a minute, he cried hastily. Perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned this till I was absolutely certain, but I want to talk to someone." His unrealized loneliness showed naked for an unguarded second on his face. He caught himself and was once more impassive. "'The earth is going to face a plague that will destroy civilization. Of that, at least, I am certain.' "'A plague,' she breathed. "'I call it that, for lack of a better term. Every being on this planet will be affected by it." Marion looked at him sharply, her lovely eyes narrowed. "'Affected? Don't you mean destroyed?' Court pushed back his chair and rose. "'No,' he whispered. "'I don't.' His grave lips went hard. "'Come here, Marion, look at this.' He strode to a safe in the wall, opened it, and withdrew a small oblong box of lead. 
set in one face was a round, transparent disk. "'Look through the lens,' he commanded. "'Don't get too close to that thing, though.' Marion obeyed. Through the tiny pane she could see within the box a shining lump of matter, no larger than the nail of her thumb. "'It's phosphorescent,' she said. "'What is it, an ore?' "'A specimen of flesh, taken from the thigh of a man named Pierre Losico, a French-Canadian.' "'Flesh!' The girl peered again at the object. "'Was he exposed to radium?' Court replaced the box in the safe. No, nothing like that. Losico lived in a little settlement in a valley in the wilderness. A month ago he staggered into the nearest town, emaciated and nearly dead. His story was just about unbelievable. He claimed that one day a heavy fog, abnormally heavy, blanketed his valley and affected the inhabitants peculiarly. They became incredibly hungry, ate enormous meals, their skin became hot to the point of high fever, and they grew so old that most of them died. Losico went for help, but nobody recognized him when he arrived in town. He looked thirty years older. What does that suggest to you, Marion? Increased metabolism, she said unhesitatingly. Exactly. A rescue party was sent out. They found the corpses of a dozen old men and women in the valley, but no sign of what killed them. There was no sign of a fog or anything dangerous. Meanwhile, Losico was luckily put into an isolation ward in the hospital. He ate tremendously. It was noticed that his skin emitted radiation. In the dark, his body actually shone. Court lit a cigarette for a few abstracted puffs before continuing. His nurse caught the contagion. She killed herself. Losico is kept in utter isolation now, for there isn't a doctor or a nurse who dares to get near him. When Dr. Granger wired me, I suggested lead insulation so he could obtain his specimen for me to study. I want to see Losico and make further experiments upon him." Marion frowned. "'You have other evidence, of course?' "'Naturally. Similar cases have been reported to me. This isn't anything new. Do you remember, about seven years ago, a newspaper story about a valley in France where the inhabitants were killed by a heavy fog? It was attributed to poison gas. Do you remember that West Indian island where life was wiped out overnight, without any explanation at all? People talked about volcanic gas. My files are full of apparently meaningless items like that—freaks and sports born to animals and humans so-called ghost stories about apparitions that shone in the dark. There are dozens of other examples." The girl shuddered as she thought of the tag of flesh she had seen. "'And do you think this is the beginning of a plague? My graphs and charts show an upward swing. These occurrences happen more frequently as time goes on. Whatever causes them is growing more powerful. But what could cause such a thing? the girl asked. No virus could. Not a virus. Filterable or not, they could not cause cellular radioactivity. This menace, this unknown X, is certainly not a virus. I don't know its nature, nor where it comes from. 
Till I know those factors, I can do nothing." "'Could it be a weapon of war?' Marion suggested. "'You mean, well, scarcely. Once it's started, it's completely uncontrollable. X isn't man-made, for its record goes back too far for chemistry. It's a natural phenomenon, and our only clue is fog." "'A gas?' Court nodded, and his eyes grew distant with thought. "'Where does it come from? Under the earth? That's possible, of course, but hardly any of these cases have occurred in volcanic country. I think X comes from the interstellar void.' Marion's eyes widened in horrified recollection. "'That's why you've been getting those observatory reports, photographs, and spectra.' Court grunted impatiently. They showed nothing, and that's what I can't understand." "'Maybe the conditions aren't right,' Marion suggested. "'Phosphorescence isn't visible in daylight. Perhaps X isn't visible in space.' Court didn't move, but his fingers broke his cigarette in two. "'What was that?' he demanded, startled. Before the girl could reply, he whistled sharply and turned to the window. "'Of course!' A catalyst! Some element in our atmosphere makes X visible, and perhaps dangerous as well. In outer space it can't be seen, but when it comes in contact with some element in the air, I think you've got it, Marion." He stared grimly at the dark sky. Up there, yet, it's invisible. Perhaps a cosmically huge cloud of it is drifting eternally through space. We're probably on the outer fringes so we've touched only a few tiny, scattered wisps. When Earth plunges into the main body—" Court lifted a clenched fist, furious because he was such a tiny, insignificant figure against the mighty concourse of the starry void. "'An element so alien that we can scarcely conceive of it. We can realize it exists only by seeing its effects on Earth. What is it?' What physical laws govern that frightful matter? Or is it matter as we know it?" He turned suddenly, his eyes hard and determined. "'We're leaving for Canada. Charter a plane. I'll pack the equipment I need.' Marion paused at the door. "'Mr. Court,' she began, and hesitated. "'Well?' Somehow, though, she could find no words. In her mind was the picture of Court at the window, challenging the universe. A champion of mankind, he had made a magnificent gesture. But then Marion saw his cold, grim eyes. Reading the expression in them, her face whitened as she realized suddenly that Court cared nothing at all for mankind. His motives were passionlessly selfish. He was not a champion. He was a scientist, cold, calculating, egocentric, challenging an opponent that threatened his existence. Whatever she meant to say died in her throat, just as something died in her heart. She went out of the room and closed the door quietly behind her. Chapter 5 Jansaya It was dark in the forest, though sunlight filtered down wanly through the branches. Truly, the earth had changed since Ardath had first set foot upon it. He was not entirely pleased as he strode along, 
matching step with the gigantic Thordred. It did not seem to him that this world would be a suitable dwelling-place. Thousands of years had passed since Ardath had taken Thordred from his home. Weary centuries had passed in ageless slumber, and a new civilization had risen. But somehow Ardath did not feel at home in this time. He sensed a subtle strangeness in the very air about him. He sighed a little wearily. His plans had gone amiss. The death of Zena, the Amazon queen, had taken him by surprise. He had hoped to retain her as a mate for Thordred, but without apparent cause the woman's sleep had changed to death. A fleeting suspicion of Thordred had passed through Ardath's mind, but he dismissed it. Though he had several poisons which might have caused such symptoms, Thordred could not possibly know of their existence nor how to use them. Not a word or a thought had Thordred revealed that his brain held all the knowledge that had been Ardath's alone. The two of them had set out to examine this new civilization, leaving the spaceship safely hidden in the forest. They had captured two natives, learned their language by means of the thought-transference machine, and taken their clothing. With all memory of the encounter wiped from their minds by means of Ardath's strange science, the natives were released. They are a puny folk today, Thordred said, his savage face twisting into a grin as he shifted the toga about his broad shoulders. These garments scarcely cover me. Our own garments might have caused comment, Ardath explained. Let us hope that your size won't mark you for an alien. Thordred spat in vicious contempt. I don't fear these weaklings. Why can I not carry a weapon, Lord? I am armed, Ardath said quietly. The huge earthling did not answer. He had not wished to accompany Ardath on this expedition. If Thordred could have remained in the ship, he would have had free access to the laboratory. After that, there would be no need to fear Ardath or anyone else. But he had not dared to object when his captor ordered him to follow. The forest thinned and the two men came out into blinding sunlight. Starting at their feet, the ground sloped down to a broad, shallow basin, a valley where a city lay. To the north was the serrated horizon of mountain peaks. Apparently they were volcanoes, for smoke plumed up lazily from one and spread in a dark blot against the blue sky. "'This is their chief city,' Ardath stated. Remember, if anyone asks, we are farmers from the outer provinces." Thordred nodded, grinning more broadly than before. A farmer! His mighty hands were accustomed to sword-hilts, not the handles of plows. But he had good reason not to argue. The metropolis was unwalled. Several unpaved but well-trodden roads led into it, along which wains and wagons were creaking in and out. Most of the houses were of wood, some of stone, and a few of marble. Those built of marble were mostly temples. Crowds filled the streets. There seemed to be two types of beings here. The roughly clad, bronzed peasant class walked or drove their wagons. The aristocracy were carried in palanquins. There were soldiers, too, armed horsemen who nevertheless seemed slight compared with Thordred's giant frame. Here, 
Ardath said, nodding toward a low doorway. Taverns are good places to hear gossip. They entered the inn, found themselves in a large room, broad and long, but low-raftered. The stench of wine and beer was choking. Lamps illuminated the darker corners. Crude tables were set here and there, at which men lounged, drinking, cursing, and laughing. Two bearded seamen were throwing dice on the floor. "'We are thirsty,' Ardath said to the waiter who appeared. He did not drink from the wine-cup that was set before him. Thordred, however, drained his at a gulp, and shouted for more. "'You are strangers here?' the innkeeper asked. He took the coins Ardath gave him, curious bronze discs engraved with a cross within a circle. They had come from the pockets of the two natives Ardath had captured. "'Yes, it is our first visit. You come to trade?' "'No,' Ardath replied. We are here to catch a glimpse of the woman whose fame has traveled even to the outer provinces. Men say that her beauty is blinding." "'So?' the landlord asked, his eyebrows lifting. "'What is her name?' "'That I do not know,' Ardath said. "'But I can draw her features.' He took from his garments a stylus of his own devising, and hastily sketched a face on the boards of the table. The likeness was so nearly photographic that the innkeeper instantly recognized it. "'By the mountain, you are an artist. That's Jansaya, the priestess. She's beautiful enough, or so men say, only you can't see her. The priestesses of Dagon never leave their temple, and men can worship only during the sea festival. Once a year men gaze on Jansaya as she serves the god. You have ten months to wait.' "'I see,' Ardath said, his face falling unhappily. "'And where is this temple?' Having learned the directions, they left the inn. "'Why do you wish to see this wench?' Thordred grunted. "'She is the wisest in this time,' Ardath said. "'I learned that before we landed here.' Hovering high over the land in his spaceship, he had located Jansaya with his ray device, and noted her high intelligence. The unexpected death of Zena the Amazon still rankled in him. He had determined to secure a substitute, and Jansaya was the logical one. She would accompany Ardath and Thordred into time, for he had decided not to remain in this civilization. It did not fulfill his requirements. The two men reached the outskirts of the temple. As yet, Ardath had not decided on any definite plan, knowing that first he must find the priestess. "'Wait here,' he said. "'Do not move away till I return.' The giant drew back in the shelter of a tree, watching Ardath cross the thoroughfare toward a gate, where a soldier lounged on his spear. The guard straightened, ready to challenge the Kyrian's entry into the city. Suddenly his eyes went blank and blind as they met Ardath's. Ordinary hypnotism worked well on these superstitious folk. Ardath went through the gate. The bulk of a temple rose before him. Built of porphyry and onyx and rose marble, it seemed to rest on the sward as lightly as gossamer. Despite its hugeness, it had been constructed with an eye for proportion, so that it was utterly lovely, a symphony in stone. 
A curving stairway rose toward bronze gates that stood ajar, with a soldier on guard at each side. Quietly, Ardath went on. The guards did not move, once they had felt the impact of his gaze. He entered the temple, found it vast, with a high arched dome, and smoky with incense. The floor was green as the sea. Jade-green, too, was the flat-topped altar that loomed before him. Behind the altar the sacred trident reared, and smoke coiled lazily about its prongs. A shaven-headed, soft-faced priest turned to face Ardath. "'You have come to pay homage to Dagon,' he said, rather than asked. "'Where are your tributes? Do you come empty-handed?' Ardath decided to change his tactics. He fixed his stare upon the priest, summoning all his will. The man hesitated, spoke a few thick words, and drew back. "'You seem strange,' he muttered. "'Your form changes.' To the hypnotized priest it seemed as though a light mist had gathered about Ardath's body. It thickened and swirled, and suddenly where had been the figure of a man was something entirely different. It was Dagon, the sea-god, as the priest pictured him in his own imagination. The man went chalk-white. He collapsed to the floor, so paralyzed with fright and amazement, that for a moment Ardath feared he had fainted. "'You know me,' Ardath said softly. "'Great master, forgive your servant!' The priest babbled frantic, incoherent prayers that sounded like gibberish. "'Bring the priestess Jansaya to me,' Ardath commanded. "'At once! At once!' The man backed behind a tapestry and was gone. Ardath lifted ironic eyebrows, for this was altogether too easy. When he felt under his robe for certain weapons he had brought with him from the ship, he nodded. Hypnotism was a ticklish trick. It was undependable, whereas weapons were not. But the priest returned leading a veiled, slight, feminine figure. Both bowed to the floor. Ardath lifted the girl to her feet. He pulled aside the veil, found that no deception had been practiced upon him. This was the priestess, the beautiful Jansaya. CHAPTER Six, UNFORGETTABLE LAND Wonderfully lovely she was, with elfin, childlike features that somehow held a certain sophistication and even a suggestion of inherent, latent cruelty. Her hair was bright gold, her eyes sea-green. Though she was tiny as a nereid, her delicately symmetrical figure was not in the least childlike. She came closer to Ardath. Suddenly he felt a searing pain on his arm and drew away sharply. "'This is no god!' Jansaya cried, her voice like tinkling silver bells. "'Blood flows through his veins. He is human, and an impostor. She drew away, a small dagger still clenched in her hand. Ardath glanced wryly at the long scratch on his arm, yet he caught the quick stir of movement. As though by magic the temple was full of shaven-headed priests. From behind the tapestried walls they came swiftly, forming a ring about Ardath. Their steel swords glittered no less coldly than their eyes. 
"'We, too, know something of hypnotism,' one of them rasped in contempt. "'There are ways of testing even gods.' Ardath thought quickly. His foes were at least two score. Hypnotism would be useless now, but he had other weapons. Under his gown was a projector that would have slain every priest in the temple if he had cared to use it. He did not. Ardath's alien philosophy forbade the unnecessary taking of me. Instead, his hand, hidden in a fold of the toga, moved almost imperceptibly. A tiny crystalline sphere dropped to the green tiles of the floor, and Ardath put his sandaled foot over it. "'Do you yield?' the leader of the priests asked. Ardath smashed the globe with his soul, at the same time holding his breath. Instantly a colorless, odorless gas diffused through the temple. The priests no longer could move. Frozen, statue-like, they stood gripping their weapons and staring blindly straight ahead. The gas had a certain anesthetic quality which warped their time-sense and slowed down their reactions tremendously. To their slowed vision it seemed as though Ardath vanished instantaneously when he stepped aside. Hastily he looked around, still holding his breath. The temple was silent. No new enemy had appeared. Ardath wrenched a sword from a motionless priest and held it lightly in his right hand. He strode quickly to the priestess and lifted her under one arm. Ardath was no giant, but his muscles were steel-strong, and Jansaya was tiny. Carrying his light captive, he hurried out of the temple. The two guards at the gate had not moved. They remained passive as Ardath descended the stairs and went through the outer portal into the street. The sentry there was also motionless and silent. But behind Ardath rose a clamor and an outcry. Nowhere could huge Thordred be seen. He had not waited. Perhaps he had been taken prisoner. Ardath's first step now was to return to the ship. After that, when the Kyrian gathered more resources, Thordred could be rescued. But at that moment there was no time for delay. Bending low, Ardath ran along the street. The noise of pursuit followed close behind him, abruptly swelling to a thunder of iron hoofs. Down upon the Kyrian rode a horseman in glittering armor, sword lifted in menace. The bearded soldier shouted a searing curse. Out of the temple gates the priests poured. "'Slay him!' they yelled as they raced after Ardath. "'Slay him!' Ardath had no time to employ any weapon but the sword that was bare in his hand. He threw Jansai aside out of danger. Quickly he reversed the blade, gripping it by the point. As the horseman thundered down, he flung the steel like a club. The street exploded into a blinding blur of action. Ardath dodged aside as ringing hoofs clashed on the pavement. The soldier's sword screamed ominously through the air, but Ardath's missile had found its mark. Its heavy hilt had smashed against the horseman's bare forehead. The man was slumped in his saddle, unconscious. The weight of his sword had completed the slash. Instantly Ardath was at the reins. He dragged the soldier down and sprang lightly into the saddle. He wheeled the mount. Reaching low over the side, he picked up Jansaya and gently, though swiftly, put the limp figure across the saddle before him. 
the horse reared and charged down the street, scattering yelling priests before its thundering hoofs. Never before had Ardath ridden a horse, nor even seen one of its kind, but eons ago, in the Miocene age, he had studied the small, fleet Neohipparion. He instantly recognized the similarity between the modern and the prehistoric desert horse. Animals had never feared nor distrusted Ardath, for he understood them too well. The steed responded to the least touch of his hands and heels. Through the city it raced. Three times Ardath had to use his sword, but only to disarm. It was not necessary to kill. Suddenly, then, the city was behind him, and he was racing up the slope toward the forest. It was already late afternoon. The shadows lay long and dark on the sward. Ardath cast a glance behind him, saw that a horde of horsemen were riding hard in pursuit. He shrugged indifferently and looked down at Jansaya. Undisturbed, she still slept. He studied her face, realizing that it was lovely beyond imagination though the perfect lips were somewhat arrogant, a little cruel. With his knowledge to combat those traits, he could make her a fit mate for any superior man. But what had happened to Thordred? Ardath was beginning to grow worried. He could do nothing till he reached the ship, though. It was sunset before he did. The titanic sphere rose above the treetops as it lay cradled in a clearing. A port was wide open, just as he had left it, but across the gap shimmered a pallid curtain of white radiance. Ardath reined in, sprang from the saddle. Snatching down Jansaya in his arms, he called out sharply, "'Thordred!' Instantly the giant came out of a thicket, his savage face inscrutable. "'Follow me,' Ardath commanded briefly, and went toward the ship. As he neared the port, the flickering curtain died. He entered, carrying his burden, and Thordred followed. Ardath turned when they were all inside. The horse was quietly grazing where he had left it. When he heard the distant sound of shouting, constantly growing louder, Ardath sighed. He put Jansaya down and closed the port. Seating himself without haste at the control panel, he sent the ship arrowing up from the forest. The vessel hung in the air, hovering motionless. Ardath turned to Thordred. "'You tried to enter the ship,' he said quietly. "'I had forbidden that. Why did you try to do so?' Thordred flushed, trying to evade that piercing, though gentle, stare. "'I came as far as the temple doors. When I saw the priests capture you, I thought you were helpless. I was unarmed, so I came back to the ship to find some weapon to aid you.' For a long, tense moment Ardath's inscrutable gaze dwelt upon the giant. "'No one can enter here save by my will,' he said. "'You would do well to obey me in the future.' Thordred nodded hastily and changed the subject. "'The girl is awakening.' Jansaya's green eyes slowly opened. The instant she saw Ardath, horror and hatred sprang into her gaze. She looked then at the crafty Thordred. Suddenly and unmistakably the giant earthling realized that he had found an ally against Ardath, but he said nothing. He waited, silent and passive, while Ardath spoke to Jansaya in her own language, 
explaining why she had been abducted. She listened attentively, and the Kyrian knew she did not regard him as a god or a demon. Not for nothing had he sought out the most intelligent human of this particular time. The sun was setting when Ardath finished his explanation. Through the transparent window of a port they could see the land that stretched beneath them, green and beautiful. Smoke plumed up from the volcanic range. The city, tiny and white, lay in the distance. "'You intend to put me to sleep?' Jansaya asked incredulously. "'For a thousand years?' "'A thousand, or more,' Ardath said quietly. "'Your civilization does not suit my needs. Do you love it so well that you would refuse?' "'No,' she responded. "'Return to be imprisoned in Dagon's temple once more? No, I am glad to be free.' but to have to leave my world forever. Kingdoms die, Ardath pointed out. Civilizations pass like shadows. When we awake, perhaps no man will remember your land. Jansaya rose and went to the port. The red sun cast bloody light on her face. You are wrong, she whispered. I am your prisoner. I have no choice but to obey. Yet if we sleep for a hundred thousand years, men will not forget my kingdom. All over earth our ships carry wondrous goods. Our civilization is the mightiest in the world. It cannot die or pass. It will go on, through the ages, growing mightier. Not even the gods can destroy this land. Not even Dagon, lord of the sea, can destroy Atlantis. End of chapter 6